But like I said, if you know and understand this process and like what I went through here, you'll honestly know more than 95% of all non-cardiology clinicians out there. Welcome back, everybody, to the Building Lifelong Athletes podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Renke. Thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Everybody's been watching and giving feedback. That means a lot. And we are going to switch things up just a little bit here. So what we're going to switch this over to is the podcast. We're going to switch it to a seasons type version. So essentially, instead of you know different topics every week, we're going to do a season where we're going to really focus on something, kind of have a little more in-depth conversation on it so we can understand it better and then move on from there. So we're officially starting season two here. Season two, we're going to talk all about lipids, so cholesterol. And today, we're specifically talking about lipid metabolism. So we're going to kind dive down to the some biochemistry and the terms lipoprotein cholesterol so if you had any questions on what that stuff means stick around i think you'll really enjoy this all right welcome everybody if you're watching this you are a fellow nerd just like me so welcome 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 what i'm hoping to talk about today is lipids for people who are not biochemists i'm trying to aim this towards clinicians or towards people who love learning about lipids or cholesterol all that Really what I'm trying to create is the resource I wish I had during my training. So during residency, I wish I had this training so I could understand more about this. It will get nerdy. I do promise you that, unfortunately. There's no way around it. Obviously, I can simplify it quite a bit. We're not going nearly as in-depth as we did in biochemistry class or anything like that. Um, but there is no way around it. It does get a little complicated at times because we just have to understand this. But it's super important to know this. Like I said, if we can understand the basics, at least the basics of this, it'll help us understand um, everything related to cholesterol. So let's dive in and let's get started. All right. So first things first is like, well, why does this matter? Well, it's super important because we need our heart to be alive, to be an athlete, right? You know, cardiovascular disease is statistically one of the most likely ways you're going to die. And so if you're going to die this way, obviously we can't do the things we want to do if we're dead. And so what we really want to do here is we want to make sure that we're fit and active for life. And so understanding this stuff will help us correct these issues or understand this better so we can live a healthier, longer life. And like I said, physiology can be a slog. I know that, but it really helps us understand why, why we think the things we think, why we treat them, why we do what we do. And so this whole talk is to try to help us understand the question, why, like, why does this happen? Why do we do these things? And so that's what I'm really going for today. Okay. So first of all, let's talk about cholesterol in general, right? What is cholesterol? Well, the question we have is it's kind of a long story short. It's a lipid or a sterol. So what this looks like is an organic molecule that has rings to it and looks kind of like a steroid molecule. And when we say it's organic, what that means is there's just some carbon molecules in the structure. Additionally, it's hydrophobic. So when we say something is hydrophobic, it means that it will not dissolve well in water. So we think about oil and water, right? They don't mix. Same thing with cholesterol and the blood, which is essentially water anyways. So cholesterol is the oil that would not mix well in the water. So we need a way to transport it through the body. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit here, but cholesterol in our body is found in two different forms, right? One being the esterified version and the other being unesterified. So those are kind of weird terms, esterified and unesterified, but the esterified version is typically a storage form of cholesterol, whereas unesterified cholesterol is typically our active form that we see throughout the body. So that's a little confusing, but once again, esterified, you're kind of storing it is kind of the way I think about it. Whereas unesterified is the more active form. And overall, cholesterol is so important because it is critical for all human life and plays an integral part in things like cell structure, rigidity, permeability, as well as the creation of bile salts and steroid hormones. So it does so, so many things in our body, and that's why it's so important for us to understand it. Okay, so overall, we're going to talk about the recap here. Cholesterol is an organic hydrophobic molecule, and it has a storage, which is the esterified form, and the free form, which is the unesterified form. So let's move on. All right, so now let's answer the first question, which is, well, how do we get cholesterol into our body, right? Well, there's two main ways you can do it. Number one, you can absorb it, or number two, you can synthesize it. So when I say getting absorbed, that means that the cholesterol is coming from the foods that we eat. 
And when I say synthesize, that means that the cholesterol is made from our own cells. In fact, the vast majority of cholesterol that we actually have in our body is made from our own individual cells. Every single cell in your body can make cholesterol because it's so important to so many things that our body does, just like we talked about in the last slide, right? And if you think about it, this makes sense. We have to have a system set up where we can guarantee we're going to have a sufficient supply of cholesterol available at all times, regardless of what we're consuming. For example, if someone was stranded in the wilderness, hadn't eaten for a couple days, it'd be critical for our body to have a way to make its own cholesterol, right? And not rely on coming from outside sources. We'll talk about both ways coming up here. All right, overall, let's talk about a review from this slide. Your body can either make or absorb cholesterol to get what it needs, but it does have the ability to make it itself and every cell in the body can do it. And the vast majority actually comes from our own cells and a smaller percentage is actually consumed. Let's move on. All right, everybody, I hope you're still with me right now because it's gonna get a little bit nerdy, I do apologize. Here we're gonna go a little bit more in depth and talk about the cholesterol synthesis pathway. And I apologize, I know that looking at this graphic is probably having some like PTSD from biochemistry, but we're gonna make this much more simple, I promise. First, we're not gonna memorize this thing, and second, there's gonna be no test, okay? So hang with me now. We're just gonna talk about the general overview and the most important steps, trying to get a basic understanding of how we make cholesterol in our body. So this is a super complicated process, right? There's like 30 plus reactions in real life and a bunch of different substrates, coenzymes, enzyme. Like I said, we're just gonna focus on the biggest steps here and the areas where we have pharmacologic targets as well. So this process predominantly takes place in liver. So you might hear me refer to liver at times because this is about where 80% of the cholesterol is made, but it can be made in other places too, like we talked about in the different cells. But if we look at this, it starts from glucose, right? Which is actually kind of interesting. So if you think about cholesterol, that molecule that's hydrophobic and has a big ring, does a billion different things, it actually starts from simple glucose. Everyone knows about glucose, right? So we take glucose and gets turned into pyruvate by glycolysis. And then pyruvate is then turned into acetyl-CoA during cellular respiration. And this is our building block to start essentially, this is acetyl-CoA. So obviously there's different ways to get there. It doesn't have to necessarily be only glucose because let's say you're not eating, right? There's other ways, but for our most intensive purposes, this is how it goes. So once we're at acetyl-CoA, we're gonna you know, go to HMG-CoA. And this is done you know, by multiple different steps that we're simplifying here, but it's done by HMG-CoA synthase. And so once we get through HMG-CoA synthase, we get to something called HMG-CoA, which is super, super important. So once we have HMG-CoA, this is gonna go to mevalonate. And what I want you to remember though is that this process is super important because this is going through HMG-CoA reductase, right? So once again, HMG-CoA reductase, need to remember that this is the rate limiting step of cholesterol synthesis, which means it controls essentially how fast the process can go. But then on top of that, additionally, this is super important because this is actually where our statin medications work. They block HMG-CoA reductase. So then once we're here, right, we have mevalonate. It can then go into squalene, kind of continue on the process, or can kind of branch off there and can create some fatty acids, which can be added with glycerol to make triglycerides. Because triglycerides have a glycerol backbone and then three fatty acids, that's why it's called a triacylglycerol. However, let's not focus on that path right now. Instead, let's talk about the squalene path. Once again, I'm simplifying this tremendously, but squalene monoclonal oxygenase then eventually converts squalene to a precursor form of cholesterol. And then eventually we get cholesterol as we know and love after multiple confusing and not currently clinically relevant steps. So once we finally have cholesterol, then it can kind of do its thing and be go off and be used to make steroid hormones or bile salts, or can help serve as structural supports for membranes or cells, or if we wanted to, we can actually set it up for eventual storage. And so there's lots of things we can do with this. And so we can take that cholesterol and get it ready for storage through an enzyme called ACAT or LCAT. They kind of are found in different places through the body, but it's not that relevant. Essentially what they do is they kind of get it ready. They esterify the cholesterol to get it ready for storage and for transport. The reason I mentioned though is because like I said, they esterify cholesterol to make it easier for transport. The reason it's so important to get into the 
a sterified version of cholesterol because if we had the unacerified version or like the active version of cholesterol then we could get those attached to the outer surface of these lipoproteins that we'll talk about in a second but we want a more efficient pathway right so to get those to storm inside of our lipoproteins it's better to have a sterified cholesterol so they can be jam-packed into the center of the lipoprotein and so once it's in the lipoprotein then it can be transported you know for multiple different reasons but that's the basic pathway how cholesterol is synthesized in the liver and then prepared to help move throughout the body Okay, so the 10,000 foot view of this slide, like I said, don't need to get bogged down by anything, but we're gonna start with glucose, which works to pyruvate, pyruvate then to acetyl-CoA. Acetyl-CoA, eventually we're gonna get to HMG-CoA, and then from HMG-CoA to mevalonate, that is synthesized by HMG-CoA reductase. And that's like the most important thing if we're gonna take from this slide, HMG-CoA reductase. So after that, we do have some more steps. Eventually it gets us to a cholesterol and then a more mature cholesterol. And then we can use ACAT to esterify that, which gets ready to get packed in lipoproteins. So overall, this whole process, it's, I just want you to take away that it's really complicated. HMG-CoA reductase is the rate-limiting step and we use ACAT to esterify that. So I hope that made a little bit sense. We'll move on and continue. All right, so now that we've talked about how we make cholesterol inside our body, now let's talk about how we absorb cholesterol if we actually eat it. So let's pretend we had a big old cheeseburger or something like that, and there's lots of cholesterol in it. How does that become usable to us? Well, that's the million dollar question we have. How does this actually become usable? First, food gets broken down in the stomach and small intestine, and as it gets broken down, it gets turned into these fat globules, and these are full of triglycerides and cholesterol, and they get broken down even more by bile salts in the intestines. After the bile salts act on these fat globules, these turn into some free fatty acids and monoglycerides, and then they get packaged up into something called the micelle, which can then get these products closer to the intestinal cells. And once they're there, they can then get absorbed into the small intestines by cells called the enterocytes. So you can see, if you're watching here, this illustration, um, there's a big, huge rectangle that's grossly overestimated in size. This is our enterocyte. And on the apical, apical meaning on the gut side, so on the side of the intestine, there's an enzyme called the neiman pick type C1-like one, or NPC1L1. Holy cow, that's a mouthful. I apologize. That's an enzyme that actually takes the cholesterol into the enterocyte. However, if the cholesterol is not in the free form or the unesterified form, right, then it can't be absorbed. So of note, I just want to mention the NPC 101 is actually clinically important because this is the enzyme that azetamide works on. So just store that piece of information for later, but that's where azetamide works. Additionally, there are some other unusable forms of cholesterol that sometimes make it through the NPC 101. And what happens is they essentially get brought into the enterocyte and it says, nope, don't want that. Not what I wanted. And it gets shipped back out by something called an ATP binding cassette transporter. So you'll see the ATPBC on the diagram if you're watching along. That shoots it back out in the intestine. And essentially what's going to happen is we're going to excrete that. Because remember, we can't use it if it's not in the free form of cholesterol, right? And also it's worth mentioning that here, the vast majority of cholesterol that we eat is actually esterified. So it doesn't get absorbed. And the vast majority of cholesterol that we do consume, it doesn't get absorbed into the bloodstream. So let's say it's unesterified, right? So let's say it is in the free form. So it gets taken up by the enterocyte. And then what happens here is it gets combined with some fatty acids, some monoglycerides, and some various proteins as well. This is combined into something called a chylomicron. So like I said, we have cholesterol, fatty acids, monoglycerides, proteins that all get put together into something called a chylomicron. One thing I want to mention is that the proteins that get attached are called apolipoprotein 48 or ApoB48. This is super important. We're going to find that B48 is the only on chylomicrons, right? So it's B48 only in the chylomicrons. And this is a protein that insists in transporting the chylomicron into the lymph system. One way to remember that is, you know, the B48 is a bomber and bomber planes carry things, right? And so essentially what happens here is B48 bombs cholesterol into the lymph system. And it's kind of like a loose wordplay, but I think it'd be helpful to, to remember what it does. 
But in the case here, once again, we get that chylomicron of B48 attached. It can be transported into the lymph system and eventually gets into circulation. So of note, it is worth mentioning that ApoB48 is specific to the chylomicron, and we won't see that in other lipoproteins like the VLDL or LDL. So this makes it unique. Okay, so let's summarize this whole slide. So we start with free cholesterol, right? Or unesterified. This can be absorbed by the NPC1L1 receptor into the enterocyte, where it's then packaged with fatty acids and a protein called ApoB48, and then shipped to the lymph and eventually the circulation. And okay, so I just mentioned chylomicrons. I think this is a good time to stop for one second and talk about lipoproteins because a chylomicron is a type of lipoprotein. So overall, lipoproteins are just what they sound, lipo or fat and proteins. So it's a mix of fat and proteins. These are spherical molecules that you can see here if you're following along in the video version. They have an outer layer that is hydrophilic and an inner layer that is typically cholesterol rich and hydrophobic. Again, these are necessary because we need to transport cholesterol and because once again, cholesterol is hydrophobic so they can't move around freely in the blood. The different types of lipoproteins are chylomicrons, VLDL, IDL, LDL, and HDL. And just like I mentioned before with the chylomicrons, we talked about, you know, kind of assembling these. The lipoproteins are made up of cholesterol, triglycerides, phospholipids, and proteins. However, each type is a very different composition of all these things. And in fact, their size and density is going to change drastically between the different molecules. Going from biggest to smallest in size is going to be the chylomicron, which is going to be the biggest, and then VLDL, IDL, LDL, and HDL being the smallest. However, if we move in the same direction, going from chylomicron to HDL, the density actually increases. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that as we move from chylomicron to HDL, we lose a lot of triglycerides, and so the density of the cholesterol concentration becomes greater with HDL, with HDL being the most cholesterol-dense lipoprotein. I also want to touch on a term called apolipoproteins, which if lipoproteins isn't confusing enough, let's throw in apolipoproteins. Why not? Apolipoproteins are somewhat confusing, but it's a protein that's actually inside the entire lipoprotein complex. So once again, if you're looking on the video version, you can see that there's these little molecules that say ApoB or ApoA or ApoC or ApoE. These are embedded into the lipoproteins. So the lipoprotein is essentially the overall structure that includes the cholesterol and the apolipoproteins. So we'll most commonly talk about apolipoproteins A and B, but there are others as well. These apolipoproteins play a critical role in many processes, and they're also helpful for identifying specific molecules. Finally, we will talk about ApoB a lot more here coming up, but ApoB is a critical biomarker used to gauge cardiovascular risk. So keep your ears open when we talk more about this, and it'll help you understand why we care about it so much. So let's break down this slide here. Lipoproteins contain fat and proteins, and the proteins are apolipoproteins. Lipoproteins transport cholesterol, that's the main job. And then these apolipoproteins that we talked about, they give crucial identification for these specific structures and can be used for clinical targets as well. So it's very important to know these. Okay, so let's jump back into our chylomicrons now. So like we talked about here before, we have our chylomicrons. We absorb cholesterol, mix in some other stuff, and then we have chylomicrons and we're ready to go. Then these chylomicrons get transported into the lymph system. And then once they're in the lymph system, they eventually make their way into the blood. And once in the blood, the chylomicron interacts with HDL. And this gives the chylomicrons apolipoproteins C2 and E. So we just talked about apolipoproteins. It actually donates C2 and E. And so now we have these three apolipoproteins on the chylomicrons, right? We have B48, which we talked about, which kind of sends it into the lymph, C2 and E. These are all critical for proper function in cholesterol homeostasis. ApoE helps lipoproteins bind to the LDL receptor on the liver, which is then responsible for reabsorption and getting cholesterol remnants out of circulation. What I'd like to think is that ApoE eats remnants, meaning it takes them back to the LDL receptor for recycling. So I think about ApoE eating the remnants to help me remember what it does. And moving on to ApoC2, this actually activates something called lipoprotein lipase, or abbreviated LPL, as you'll see here. 
Lipoprotein lipase is found predominantly in adipose tissue, muscle, and heart tissue, but it isn't present in the liver because the liver has something else called hepatic lipase, which does the same thing. But LPL's function is essentially cut off triglycerides into free fatty acids and glycerol so that fats can be used you know, by the body, but if they aren't used at all, they can also be turned back into storage when combined with triglycerides again. So essentially, what lipoprotein lipase does is cleaves off triglycerides into free fatty acids so we can use them. The way I remember that is that C2 cleaves and cuts, and that's how I remember C2 cleaves and cuts those triglycerides. So now we have our chylomicrons, but no, they've been torn apart by APOC2 and it's lost some triglycerides. So actually APOC2 gets passed back to HDL. So HDL donates it and then takes it back. So if you're looking to follow along in the video though, you'll see that APOC2 is donated by HDL and then after it does its job of activating lipoprotein lipase, then gets returned back to HDL. And so what we're left with then is a chylomicron remnant that has apolipoprotein B48 and ApoE still on it. But because it's changed its shape and we've kind of gotten rid of some triglycerides and APOC2, it's now called a remnant chylomicron. And essentially you're gonna see this terminology remnant. A remnant is pretty much any lipoprotein after it's been stripped of triglycerides and fatty acids. What happens to these remnants is that they can essentially go back to the liver and be absorbed by the LDL receptor. Sometimes they hang around, but for chylomicrons, essentially we're going back to the liver. And remember that the remnant still has ApoE on it. So, right? So, if it has ApoE, it can be recognized by the LDL receptor on the liver and can get taken in and then broken down into amino acids and cholesterol. And so, once broken down, cholesterol can be stored, incorporated into cell membranes, or repackaged into other lipoproteins. So, this is kind of like the beginning of the cycle of how we recycle cholesterol to be used later. All right, so let's talk about a little summary here for the chylomicron. First and foremost, HDL adds ApoC2 and ApoE to the chylomicron. And since you remember that, ApoC2 activates LPL then, which cleaves triglycerides into free fatty acids. Once this chylomicron loses its fatty acids and glycerol, it becomes a remnant. After the cleaving is done, apolipoprotein CT goes back to HDL, and the remnant then is left with ApoE and ApoB48, and it's able to go back to the LDL receptor via the ApoE, like we talked about, and it's recycled. Okay, so now we're gonna pick up where we left off, and that's the liver. So we brought that chylomicron back, we're recycling it. And so now we're gonna start the synthesis of a new lipoprotein called a VLDL or very low density lipoprotein. Where we're assembling the VLDL, we're gonna have lots of similar components like triglycerides, cholesterol, and proteins. Only this time, the protein is gonna be ApoB100 and not ApoB48. And this is super important because ApoB100, this is the marker for our atherogenic particles, which we're gonna talk about later, but they're considered atherogenic or the ones that are associated with causing heart disease. So just remember and put in your brain that ApoB100 is different from ApoB48. So once these VLDLs are assembled, right, they're then pushed into circulation where once again, they meet up with HDL and HDL donates ApoC2 and ApoE. And once again, these things do the exact same things they do with the chylomicron. ApoC2 cleaves and cuts the VLDL to release triglycerides and free fatty acids for either use or storage. And then ApoE can then help the remnant lipoprotein bind to the LDL receptor to get taken up by the liver. However, we also have a new interaction that the VLDL can undergo. HDL can also interact with the VLDL molecule by an enzyme called cholesterol ester transfer protein or CETP or CTEP, whatever people say, which essentially what this does is it exchanges cholesterol esters from HDL for a triglyceride on the VLDL. So this makes the VLDL remnant molecule more cholesterol dense and triglyceride poor. So once again, the VLDL is getting rid of triglyceride for cholesterol from the HDL. And once these two interactions take place, ApoC2 is actually given back to HDL and we're left with the VLDL remnant with ApoB and ApoB100. And as you remember, ApoE can bind to the LDL receptor for uptake and recycling the liver. This remnant can also be called IDL, which we'll talk about in a second here, but not all the IDL goes to the liver as some that kind of hang around in circulation. Okay, so let's summarize a VLDL. VLDL is the first ApoB100 lipoprotein. That's really important. It's still very triglyceride rich, but a little bit less than the chylomicron. 
we still have APOC2 and APOE, which have the same functions we talked about before. And LPL releases triglycerides for you know user storage. And then this is different where the CETP, this can transfer cholesterol from HDL to VLDL. And then we have the remnant slash IDL that can go back to the liver or it can stick around. Okay, so now it's a good time to start talking about IDLs or intermediate density lipoproteins. Essentially, these are just VLDL remnants, but for whatever reason, they get a really cool name. For IDLs, three main things can happen to them. Number one, they can be recycled back to the liver, right? This goes through the exact same process we talked about before. But remember, the IDL still has APOE protein, so essentially it has a really high affinity for the LDL receptor. So it can travel back to the liver, a chat to the LDL receptor, get taken in, and get recycled. So that's one option, right? Option number two would be you can use it at different tissues like the adrenal cortex and can be used to make different types of hormones. So that's the second option. And option number three is if it isn't taken back to the liver right away or isn't used right away, it can be broken down even further by losing more triglycerides and cholesterol and can actually be put back into circulation as an LDL molecule. So essentially, if it hangs around long enough, the IDL can be turned into LDL. How does this happen? Well, remember that CETP enzyme we were talking about before? So with the CETP enzyme, right? So what we're having is it's interacting, the HDL is interacting with the IDL, right? And so with via CETP, HDL is donating cholesterol to the IDL and IDL is donating triglycerides back to the HDL. So once again, the IDL is becoming more cholesterol dense, but it's becoming more triglyceride poor. So think about it. We had VLDL, right? Very low density. Now we have IDL or intermediate density, and then we eventually get to low density, which means we're gonna get a greater concentration of cholesterol on the LDL molecule. What happens here as well is that once we have this interaction, APOE actually goes back to HDL. So this is different, right? So essentially at the end, we lose APOE and are left with an IDL remnant, which is what we call LDL. So all we're left with is APOB100, right? No more APOE that's gone back. We talked about APOB100 before, but that's all that's left in terms of lipoproteins. So we have a much smaller molecule in We have a larger percentage of cholesterol, but a smaller percentage of triglycerides and APOB100. Now let's talk about the IDL review. IDL has APOE and APOB100. It does interact with CETP. We did the triglyceride and cholesterol exchange. And essentially after this, it becomes LDL and eventually loses APOE as well. And so we're left with a IDL remnant or LDL, which just has APOB on it. All right, so now we've finally arrived at LDL, right? The one everybody talks about, so let's talk about it. We just covered how IDLs can become LDLs or low density lipoproteins. And all we have is some cholesterol, triglycerides and APOB100. But because we no longer have APOE, how does this LDL get taken up by liver, you might ask? Well, fear not, I'll explain that. But first, let's just mention that APOE has a super high affinity for sites like the adrenal cortex and the gonads in addition to the LDL receptor. So now that we no longer have APOE, the LDL can actually go to other places throughout the body a lot more easily. And so this is obviously good and bad, right? This is good because we can get cholesterol over the body. It's bad because sometimes LDL goes where it shouldn't and it gets into trouble. The problem is, you know, like I said, if it hangs on too long in circulation, it can get oxidized. And when this happens, if it happens in the subendothelial space, this is what triggers atherosclerosis. And atherosclerosis is super important. And we'll talk entirely about that in a different lesson, but it's super important. This is why we care so much about LDL or really any APOB containing compound because these are the ones that get into that space and then get oxidized and cause atherosclerosis. It just happens that LDL is most likely to do this, but it can happen with any APOB-containing lipoprotein. So you might be thinking, are we doomed to have LDL just floating around all day in the blood forever because we no longer have APOE? Thankfully, the answer to that is no. Turns out that APOB100 actually can bind to the LDL receptor as well. So it's possible for the LDL particle to still get taken up by the liver. In addition, I do want to talk about the LDL receptor while we're you know, talking about the LDL. I think it's worth mentioning that the LDL receptor plays a super important role in pharmacotherapy and that if we can keep this LDL receptor more available or we can somehow make more of them, then we can absorb more LDL, lower that LDL particle number, and then we're going to have fewer LDL particles hanging around, floating around that can get in trouble. 
Specifically, I wanna talk about PCSK9 and how this ties into it as well. So if you're following along in the video, you'll see a blue dot is PCSK9. What essentially PCSK9 does is it binds to the LDL receptor on the liver, and then this leads to a you know, degradation of the LDL receptor. So once again, if the PCSK9 attaches to the LDL receptor, the LDL receptor kind of breaks down. So what happens though if this molecule is somehow inhibited? Well, the LDL receptor would be around for a lot longer, right? So if we had something that binds to the PCSK9 that prevented it from binding to the LDL receptor, then that would keep the LDL receptor around open for longer, which is good for us, right? Well, we'll talk more about them later, but this is exactly what PCSK9 inhibitors do. They block PCSK9 from binding on the LDL receptor. So we have more LDL receptors available to bring up and absorb the LDL. We'll talk more about it here, but I did want to mention it here for completeness. All right, time for our LDL review. LDL only has ApoB100, right? No more ApoE. It moves around the body a little more freely without that ApoE, but it does have the ApoB, which can still bind to the LDL receptor, right? And the reason we care so much about LDL is because if we get that in the subendothelial space, that's no bueno. We're gonna have some trouble there. And talking about LDL and LDL receptors, PCSK9 usually degrades the LDL receptor. So, but if we have an inhibitor of the PCSK9, then it keeps that LDL receptor around, you know, and available for longer, which is definitely what we want to do. Okay, so now we talked about all the ApoB-containing lipoproteins, right? The chylomicrons, VLDL, IDL, LDL. It's time to shift a bit and talk about HDL in a more dedicated fashion. Obviously, HDL is going to have more ApoA proteins, like we've mentioned before, but that's one of the distinctive characteristics that separates it from our chylomicrons, VLDL, IDL, and LDL. And I know they've already seen HDL interact with multiple molecules, but I thought it'd be worthwhile to go through this in more detail to talk about it specifically, right? HDL is made in either the liver or the intestines and initially starts with an ApoA1 protein. This is a, you know, Third major protein associated with HDL, we've talked about them before, but ApoA1 is essentially the main component of HDL from a protein perspective, and it's super lipid poor. ApoA1 is part of an immature or nascent HDL, which is essentially excreted either from the liver or the intestines and then goes out to the peripheral cells throughout the body. And once it's hanging out in circulation, an enzyme called lecithin cholesterol acyl transferase, or LCAT, which is much easier, interacts with this HDL, and it helps store cholesterol as esterified cholesterol in the HDL. So we talked about esterified, right? That's that storage version. ApoA1 is a coenzyme for LCAT as well. So I kind of think about they work together and it's kind of like they work together to help store cholesterol esters. So LCAT is kind of taken for a ride with HDL until they get to a cholesterol-laden tissue. And when they finally get to a tissue with cholesterol, ApoA1 interacts with something called the ABCA1 protein, and this helps take up cholesterol. And then once again, with the help of LCAT, it's esterified and then transforms into you know, what we call an HDL3 molecule. So this is a little bit more mature, but not fully mature yet. You know, we started that nascent, which is immature. You know, we go through cholesterol, we use LCAT to esterify it, and we get to HDL3, which is more mature, but not fully there yet. This HDL3 then interacts with lipoproteins like VLDL, IDL, and LDL, like we talked about, and uses that CETP, right, that enzyme we talked about, to exchange cholesterol for triglycerides. So this is now where the HDL is exchanging, right, cholesterol and triglycerides. So this new HDL has more triglyceride, has less HDL, and is now called HDL2, or is what a, we call a mature HDL. It can then deliver cholesterol to the liver via two pathways, either the direct pathway where HDL can interact with the SRB1 in the liver and dump up its cholesterol, and then this lipid poor molecule can then recirculate back to the process, right? So the direct pathway, HDL's like, hey, I'll take it myself, I got this, go there, attaches to SRB1, gets rid of some cholesterol, comes back and recirculates. You know, the cholesterol that's dumped there usually becomes either bile acids or is excreted into the bile. And like we said, that was the direct way. The indirect route is what we've already talked about. So it's where HDL, you know, gives cholesterol via CETP to VLDL, IDL, or LDL, and essentially they're using them to carry. So the direct way, 
HDL is taking itself. The indirect way says, here you go, guys, here's cholesterol. You go take it back to the liver. And this idea of taking cholesterol from all over the body and bringing it back to the liver is called reverse cholesterol transport. And this is one of the reasons why people call HDL a quote unquote good cholesterol. So in a perfect world, HDL would come along and be able to return all the extra cholesterol to the liver. But we know that we don't live in a perfect world. So sometimes we have a little too much cholesterol accumulate where it shouldn't. But even then, HDL still takes up cholesterol and tries to get rid of it as best it can. But this is like the general flow of HDL and how it works, you know, in an overall, like really general 30,000 foot view. Okay. So let's take a step back here. Let's review HDL. So we've talked about HDL before. We've talked about how it has the APOC2 and APOE, right? So the immature nascent HDL has APOE, C2, and then A1, you know, and this is secreted from either the intestine or liver. Then LCAT kind of joins along and then at the periphery, this all attaches to the ABCA1 receptor and essentially releases cholesterol. And then LCAT esterifies that and it helps it store into the internal part of the HDL. And this is essentially what we call an HDL3 molecule, right? So kind of confusing, but nascent, immature, picks up LCAT. Once we have LCAT, you know, ABC1 helps release cholesterol, LCAT esterifies it, and then it turns it into an HDL3. HDL then essentially loses cholesterol and gains triglycerides via SCETP, and then HDL3 goes to an HDL2, and it's considered mature. And then it can get rid of cholesterol either through a direct pathway or indirect pathway. Direct meaning, hey, it takes its you know own path to the liver, drops off cholesterol, goes back to circulation, or does indirect where we've talked about before, uses CETP, kind of gets rid of some of that cholesterol to the IDL, LDL, or VLDL, and takes all the back there. So HDL plays a very, very important role in cholesterol transport. Reverse cholesterol transport is what we you know, you know think is the good, one of the good benefits of HDL, um, but it plays a really crucial role as you see and does a lot of different things. And so now to close things out, I wanna talk a little bit about triglycerides and how they're made. So as you've already learned through this talk, triglycerides are not only critical for life, but they play a constant role in cholesterol synthesis, transport, energy storage, and a bunch of other things. And when they're elevated, they can lead to problems or can generally be an indicator that there's other problems, metabolically speaking. But I wanted to cover their own synthesis because we'll be talking more about some of the medications we can use to decrease them, so it would be helpful. Triglycerides can be made mostly in all cells of the body and are made of glycerol backbone and three fatty acids. So when combined, this is where we get the term saturated or unsaturated fatty acids, depending on the number of double bonds and the chemical structure. So an image here, just for example, so if you look at the top image here, the top line is saturated because there's no double bonds. Whereas the middle, we have one double bond. So that's a monounsaturated fatty acid. And the bottom, we have multiple double bonds, which is a polyunsaturated fatty acid. So I'm sure everyone's heard about monounsaturated versus polyunsaturated. That's essentially what they're talking about there, just like chemical structures and double bonds. You know, it's worth knowing because it's going to come up when we talk about dietary interventions for cardiometabolic disease. So I just wanted to mention it. And to make a triglyceride in liver, we need to combine fatty acids and glycerol. However, glucose is usually the starting block for this as well. Glucose gets turned into G3P and via multiple steps eventually becomes diacylglycerol. So once we have diacylglycerol, going from diacylglycerol to triacylglycerol is the next big step to finally becoming a triglyceride. And this is mediated by an enzyme called DGAT2, which is an important enzyme because this is the medication niacin that works on this enzyme. So niacin typically works at DGAT2, one of their mechanisms of it. We'll talk more about it, but I want to include it for completeness. And essentially, while we're on the topic of triglyceride lowering meds as well, there is another medi medication called fibrates, and their mechanism isn't quite clear, but it's thought to be due to reducing the substrates that allow for triglyceride synthesis in the liver, and it may also increase, increase LPL activity, which, as we know, cuts up triglycerides into fatty acids. So it's not as clear. They think fibrates maybe inhibit triglyceride synthesis along the way, 
or kind of cleaves them open using LPL. So we're not entirely sure on that. Once triglycerides are made, they can be stored in adipocytes for future use. And then they're transported on all these lipoproteins we just talked about, right? But the majority is done in the chylomicrons and the VLDLs. Like we said, we talked about those are really triglyceride rich, chylomicron and VLDLs. So that's majority where they are. We don't need to go as in-depth as we did for lipoproteins, but I want to include this because it's really important and we'll read about it and talk about it in the future as well. So let's talk about our triglyceride review. So triacylglycerols or triglycerides have a glycerol backbone with three fatty acids, three meaning tri, so triglycerides. We can have saturated fatty acids or unsaturated. Saturated means there's no double bonds. Monounsaturated means there's one double bond. Polyunsaturated means there's multiple double bonds. Essentially going from diacylglycerol to triacylglycerol in the synthesis pathway, there's a DAG2 enzyme, which essentially this is blocked by niacin. That's why we care about it. And also we talked about our fibrate medications a little bit. We think that it lowers triglyceride synthesis through multiple mechanisms that we're not entirely clear on, but triglycerides will come up time and time again. So it's important to know about them. Okay. So we're wrapping this all up here. That was a lot of chemistry. I apologize. But like I said, if you know and understand this process and like what I went through here, you'll honestly know more than 95% of all non-cardiology clinicians out there. So stick with me because this really, really does lay the foundation for the rest of, you know, this whole season and in the lessons and episodes we're going to talk about to make more sense. But just in a general review here, ApoB particles, VLDL, IDL, LDL, critically important. This is a very complicated process, um, but I just think that if you understand it, it will get better. I just want you to understand this so we can understand risk better and we can understand our treatments, right? So once again, those are the big takeaways is that I want you to feel more confident in this, understanding at least what these terms mean, where they come from, what are we talking about when we're talking about lipoproteins and all that. So like I said, there was a lot. I really hope you got something out of this, but uh, we'll see you next time with the next lesson. Thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. Can't tell you how much that means to me. If you found this helpful, it'd mean the world if you liked, subscribed, commented, or shared with a friend. So once again, please tune in for more information as we'll continue this series here. But uh, you know, if you've learned what you need to learn today, get off the computer, go outside, and enjoy your day. Take care. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.